Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Father, this morning we have worshipped you through our time together already, taking communion, our fellowship during breakfast, Father, our time of studying the Word in Sunday school, through the wonderful fellowship we've had here in the sanctuary, and through the wonderful music, the blessed music of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have poured out on us this morning. Now, as we focus our attention solely upon you, Father, let us look at the proof that comes from the tomb this morning, and I ask that you make very little of me. And very much of you. This we pray in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. In the story now, we're going to look at the proof that is in the tomb of Jesus Christ. The proof that is in the tomb. Let me take you back just three days. It's three o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus has been on the cross now uh, since nine on Friday morning. He's been on the cross for six hours For six hours he's been on that cross. He and the thieves are all dead. They're all dead. Now the Jewish leaders, they need the bodies off of that set of crosses. Why? Because at six on Friday afternoon, the Sabbath will start. And this is no ordinary Sabbath. See, this is the high Sabbath. As a matter of fact, it tells us in John's account in that uh, 19th uh, chapter of of, uh, John, it talks about what this uh, Sabbath meant to them in the 19th chapter in the 31st uh, verse. In the 31st verse, it says, Therefore, because it was a preparation, the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. So, those bodies had to come down. And the reason being is because it wasn't just an ordinary Sabbath. This was the Sabbath that was on the Passover. The Passover was being done during the Sabbath. And it was a high Sabbath. And for those bodies to remain on the cross would defile the Passover and would defile the Sabbath. See, Jewish law said that to leave those bodies on the cross would, would cause the entire Sabbath to be ruined. So they wanted those bodies down. Well, that brings us to the tomb. You see, the only way for those bodies to come off the cross is for something to be done with those bodies. So it brings us to the tomb. And it's at the tomb that the foundation of Christianity stands. See, many hold tight to the cross. And yes, the cross is important. But remember this. The cross without the tomb is useless. See, to have a cross and end at the cross gives you no hope of eternal life. It may give you forgiveness of your sins, but there will be no eternal life without that empty tomb. An entire crux of Christianity rests at the solid rock at the base of that tomb. (laughs) The proof that Christianity is true is found inside of that tomb. So this morning we're going to look at the proof of the tomb. The first truth that we see at this tomb is the certainty of the tomb. The certainty of the tomb. The tomb makes it certain, first and foremost, that Jesus was dead. See, Jesus was dead. A tomb only serves one purpose. There's only one purpose for a tomb, and it's to bury the body of the person who has died. There is no other use for a tomb. Why is it important that the tomb is mentioned in the narrative of Jesus? By Jesus being placed in that tomb, we can be certain that Jesus was dead. 
<laughs> you look at me as if I'm crazy. Who doesn't believe <laughs> that Jesus died on the cross? Who doesn't believe? <laughs> there are a lot of people who don't believe. Let me shock you. There are a lot of people sitting here this morning that do not believe. There are a lot of people that don't believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. There are a lot of people that cannot imagine a man willing to crawl upon the cross. It takes such a beating to hang upon a cross, to be spit upon, to be ridiculed, to be humiliated, to be hung naked, and do it all for you. There are a lot who do not believe. And see, it's important that you believe that he was dead until you, until you stop and think about the theories that come out about the death of Jesus. You may think that it's a really simple statement to say that Jesus was dead. But do you know there are theories saying that he never died on that cross? There are theories throughout all of time that Jesus never died on the cross. <laughs> I find it kind of odd that those theories sometimes show up in our church. Let me give you a couple of those theories. One theory is that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. That's a viable theory. They could have slipped up in the middle of the night and rolled back the stone and took his body. As a matter of fact, it's such a great theory. Do you know what appears in the Bible? Look at Matthew 28. Right after the passage we read this morning, over in Matthew 28, in the 11th verse of Matthew 28, it says this, Now while they were going, this is the ladies that were approaching the tomb, it says, Behold, some of the guard came, that guard is the guard that had been guarding the tomb, came into the city and reported to the chief priest. Now I find it interesting. Who did the guard work for? The Romans. Yet they went to the chief priest. It says they, they went to the chief priest uh, at all the things and reported all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while you were asleep. <laughs> and if this comes up in the governor's ears, their boss, <laughs> we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. It wasn't till just the day this was written. That's commonly reported today. People believe that the disciples showed up. Here are the chief priests. They're willing to pay off a guard to admit, to, to say, I didn't do my job. I let the disciples come in the middle of the night and steal him. And there are people today that still believe that Jesus didn't die, didn't resurrect. He was in the tomb. They come and stole the body. They just don't believe the whole story. <laughs> See, it's interesting what the guards are told to say. They're told to say, stole him while we slept. Has anybody ever been in the military? Anybody? Yeah. You ever been on guard in the military, whether it's guarding a trash can or whether it's guarding a missile? If you're on guard, what are you to do? Stay awake. Your job is to stay awake. Now, our military doesn't shoot you or hang you for falling asleep on duty. But guess what the Romans did? To fall asleep on guard was a life sentence. You want to know why the guard went to the priest and not the governor? They'd have never had a story to tell because they wouldn't have been alive to tell it. So it says that they were told us these guys were willing to put their life on the line for a lie. They were willing to perpetrate a lie. There are several problems with this story. 
If they were asleep, how'd they know who stole the body? That's my first question. If you're asleep, how can you affirmatively say it was the guard, or it was the disciples that stole them? If you're asleep, you have no idea who showed up. Second, if they were asleep, they weren't doing their job. And for them to even be willing to stand before not only their boss and say that, but the rest of the guys that they served with in their military and their ranks and say, I'm not a worthy soldier, was a pretty big deal. These guys were willing to really just perpetrate an entire lie to disprove this whole Jesus theory. So one of the theories is somebody slipped in and stole his body. Another theory is that he wasn't dead at all. (laughs) He just passed out. (laughs) This is called a swoon theory. This is a great theory. This is a great theory. it's, It's spun up by a pretty intelligent guy in the 1600s, by the way. When did Jesus die? A few thousand years earlier. In the 1600s, this guy Venturi came up with this theory that he hadn't died at all. He just kind of fell asleep. He got put inside of this nice, cool tomb. And he had all this fragrant stuff put on him. And the coolness of the tomb and the, the overwhelming abundance of the smells of the spices just snapped him right out of it. And somehow he just crawled out through the crack in the rock, I guess. They never got around to that part of the theory. But they said the whole theory was he had just kind of fallen asleep. Of course, there is a a problem with that theory. The Bible addresses it too over in John. In John 19. In John 19, verse 31, it says this. Therefore, because it was the preparation day. Remember, we just talked about that that, uh, whole Sabbath deal coming up at 6 o'clock. The day before the Sabbath was the day that they prepared for the Passover because they couldn't do anything. So here it is a Friday. It's just a fancy way of saying Friday. That the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Why did they need to break their legs? Because it was absolutely unheard of for a crucifixion to last six hours. Crucifixion time was measured in days, not hours. See, the whole purpose of the crucifixion was to inflict the absolute most misery, discomfort, and pain upon a criminal that they could. If they wanted them to die in six hours, they'd have just cut their head off. They wanted them to suffer. It was days they normally hung on the cross, not hours. But because the Sabbath was approaching, the priest said, we need to break their legs. They've got to come off of those crosses. So it says, then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. Notice they went to the left. They went to the right. They broke the legs. Why? Because by hanging by their arms, the only way they could get breath into their body was to push up on their feet on the spike driven through their their feet. They would push up and take a breath and slump back down against the nails. If they hung on the nails that were nailed through their hands, they would suffocate. By breaking their legs, there was no more pushing up. And they would suffocate. So he said, they broke their legs. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Let me ask you this. Do you really think that the Romans who invented crucifixion couldn't tell when a man was dead? They had literally murdered thousands of people on crosses. They had literally taken many, many criminals to the cross and seen them die. If there was anybody in the world that knew death at crucifixion, 
It was the Romans. And it says, they came to break Jesus' legs. And instead of breaking his legs, they looked up and said, that's useless. That guy's dead. So we had the actual testimony of the Romans that Jesus was dead. He was hanging there dead. The passage I read you in Matthew, though, is, is one of my favorite testimonies of the fact he was dead. For it says in Matthew 27, verse 62, it says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, remember? These were the guys that first looked at Jesus and said, Are you the Son of God? Are you? And when he says, It is as you say, they rent their clothes and said, Kill him! He's blasphemed. These are the guys who said, This man needs to be killed. He's blaspheming God. These are the guys who sent him to the cross. And it says that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Remember Pilate? He was the one after he went to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas heard Jesus say, it is as you say. They hauled him off the next day to Pilate's house. Pilate just interrogated him, said, I could find nothing wrong with him. Decided he could get out of it by sending him to Herod's house. The governor, Herod, said, I can't find anything, but just for fun, we're going to beat him. We're going to bruise him. We're going to dress him up like a king, and we're going to send him back over to my buddy Pilate. Because they became friends, the word said, because of Jesus. They send him back over to Pilate. Pilate says, I still can find absolutely nothing wrong with this guy. Yet it was custom that they release a criminal at this particular time. And they rolled Jesus out. They rolled out Barabbas. And he says, I need to release this guy because I can find nothing wrong. And do you remember what the crowd did? Give us Barabbas. When he said, but there's nothing wrong with Jesus. There's nothing wrong. The entire crowd said, crucify him. Crucify him. This is the Pilate that now the Pharisees and the Sadducees were gathering together, coming to Pilate. And they said in verse 63, Sir, we remember while he was still alive. From the lips of the murderers come the confession that Jesus Christ was dead. Why would they say while he was still alive if he wasn't still alive? They said, we remember before he died what he had said. From the very lips of the ones who sent him to the cross comes the confession that Jesus Christ was dead. He was dead when he was stuck in this tomb. But there's further proof. There's further proof in John. If that's not enough to convince you, flip over to John chapter 19 with me. John chapter 19, very quickly. Very quickly in John chapter 19, verse 34. And I'm going to fly through these. If you've got a pen, write them down. Verse 34 of John 19 says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. We know Jesus was dead by the pure physical evidence given to us of the blood and the water coming out. It's said by some doctors that when a person dies of a broken heart, that the blood and the water mix within the heart, and when it's pierced, it runs out. It runs out as blood and water mix, not pure blood. It's said that when a person dies, that their body functions shut down. And what flows out of their body, if you cut it open, is, is blood and water. I don't know. I've never stabbed anybody in the side that's been dead. But I do know this. You run a spear through my heart, whether I'm dead or not, whether blood and water runs out or not, I will be dead in just a few minutes. <laughs> and it says that that soldier, instead of breaking his legs... Ran a spear through his side. 
and out poured the blood and the water of death. So we have the physical evidence. In the 35th verse of that exact same chapter, it says this, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. As if it's not good enough that it's written that the blood and the water ran out of his heart and his body because he was dead. The one, John, who writes the book says, I know it because I saw it. I'm a witness. So we've got the physical evidence. We've got the witness of an eyewitness. But you know, we've also gotten the 38th verse, something even more interesting. In the 38th verse, it says this, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. What's significant about this Arimathea, this, this guy, Joseph of Arimathea? What's significant about him? Him and his compadre, as a matter of fact. There was another one we'll look at in a second that was with him, this guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you may know. Joseph of Arimathea, you probably don't know. You know why? I can't find him anywhere else. I can't find him, but there's some significant things about this Joseph of Arimathea that makes me understand Jesus was absolutely dead. What are the things? It says here that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple in verse 38. This Joseph of Arimathea was a very important person in the church, in the Sanhedrin, among the Pharisees. And even though he believed in Jesus, he could only do it secretly because it would cost him everything. He would be ridiculed. He'd be kicked out. He may even be hung upon a cross himself. So this Joseph of Arimathea, it says there, was, was secretly a disciple of Jesus. In Mark, though, in Mark chapter 15, it gives us a better picture of him. In uh, Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, in the 43rd verse, it says this about him. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, keep that in mind, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This Joseph of Arimathea that had been secretly following Jesus suddenly was emboldened. It said that he was, he was emboldened. It said that he suddenly got courage. How did he get courage? To take down from the cross... A man who wasn't dead. If the man wasn't dead, would he have risked everything to take his body? Would he have gone and stood before Pilate and said, give me the body. I'll take it. He was willing to come out of the closet of Christianity because he knew the one who said that he would die upon a cross for his sins had died. And then we've got that poor Nicodemus for Nicodemus that was with him. It tells us in one of the Gospels that Nicodemus showed up to help him. And in John 3, we get a picture of who this Nicodemus is, just in case you forget. But this Nicodemus was a pretty important fellow. It tells us in the very first and second verse of John chapter 3, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. It also says, A ruler of the Jews. And it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What do we see about Nicodemus? 
Nicodemus came. It says, matter of fact, that, that uh, uh, jo uh, Joseph of Arimathea brought the linen and Nicodemus went and got the spices. They teamed up. They, they got together on this thing. This Nicodemus, if you think Joseph of Arimathea was important being on the council, think about this Nicodemus. He was, he was a ruler over the Jews. He ruled from the church. He was a Pharisee. Everything rested on his ability to keep the law. Everything rested on his ability to teach everyone else that they should keep the law. Yet what was he willing to do? Say the law doesn't matter. I'll take that man off that cross. Do you think he'd have turned his back on all those years of tradition and everything he had learned from a very young age, everything he had believed in, would he have turned his back on that if Jesus wasn't dead? I think not. I think not. The evidence is just too strong. You see, these men were well respected by the Jews. They were highly esteemed among the Jewish leaders, yet they were willing to lose their prominence, their standing, their reputation. They would not have done this to fake the death of Jesus. To fake the death of Jesus would have gained them no ground. It would have cost them just the same as taking a dead Jesus down. It would have cost them everything. Would they be willing to do that if Jesus wasn't dead? They would only have exposed themselves because they knew Jesus was dead, just as he said it would happen. <laughs> In fact, being Jews, they would not have even touched a dead body. See, part of the law was to touch a dead body defiled them. And what was the time of year? Passover. They would have not even been able to participate in Passover because they would have been defiled from touching a dead body. Yet they were willing to take the hundreds of years of tradition of Passover and say, forget it. We'll take that lamb off the cross. Everything they had ever placed their faith in had vanished. All those things that they had stood solidly upon for years, in the one moment they said, give me the body, their past life vanished. <laughs> There's not a man that would do that for a fake death. <laughs> See, Jesus had died and was buried in a tomb because that is what God decided to do. <laughs> We've seen the certainty of the tomb. The certainty being that the tomb was there and we are certain it was there to prove to us that Jesus was dead. Because without his death upon the cross, there would be no spilling of sin. And the word tells us without the spilling of blood, there is no remission of sin. So it's there to prove to us that Jesus was dead. The second thing the tomb proves to us is there is sovereignty in the tomb. There's sovereignty in the tomb. See, God was in complete control of Jesus' crucifixion, if you remember. The crucifixion was mentioned way back in the Old Testament, but it was never even invented until the New Testament. It was spoken of that he would be beaten, that he would be hung up on a tree. All those things were prophesied in the Old Testament and were fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament after the Romans had invented crucifixion, which never existed when it was prophesied. All the prophecies were proof that God was in complete control of the crucifixion. Right down to the fact that he never spoke a word when they ridiculed him. And whenever they questioned him, whenever they said, is this true? Is that true? He stood silently because the word said that he was like a sheep led to slaughter. He was silent. He was dumb before those who would question and ridicule him. 
All the prophecies about his death he had fulfilled. Jesus himself had decided when he would die. Because while he was on the cross, they had never seen a man that had enough breath left in him that he could raise up and cry out loud, It is finished! And then hang his head and die. Most times they were gasping just to breathe. Yet Jesus decided when he would die. So there's the sovereignty of of God at the cross, but God was just as sovereign in the tomb. First, because of the fulfilled prophecies of the tomb. This is amazing to me. Isaiah Isaiah 53. If you remember the book of Isaiah, there's a lot of prophecies about Jesus at this time. But Isaiah 53, 9 says this, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now, what is special? What is special about that particular uh, verse? See, when a person was crucified, they took him off the cross. And when they took him from the cross, they didn't give him to the family and say, Now go bury him. You see, for a person to get on the cross meant he was no longer part of society and he didn't deserve anything. So when they took him off the cross, they threw him in a place called Gehenna. Gehenna, the city dump. The body was cast into the city dump because he was deserving of nothing. Tombs were so scarce at that time, they actually reused them. That's why it mentions this being a new tomb. So why would they place a criminal who didn't deserve to be among the public into a tomb that they didn't have enough of in the first place? So they would take them down and they would just take them out and throw them out into the dump. And the birds and the animals would eat them. Sometimes they were even left upon the cross and let the birds and animals eat them there. <laughs> and, but, but it says here that, that and they made his grave with the wicked. Where would his grave have been if his grave was with the wicked? In the dump. The scripture says his grave was made with the wicked. Why? That's to signify the type of death with which he would die. A common criminal upon a cross. It says that, that his grave was made with the wicked. He was, he was to die a criminal's death. He had hung next to two of the thieves. Yet when he died, someone came to get his body. Remember? And here's the significance. Look back at Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, verse uh, 57, it says, Now when the evening had come, there came a rich man... From Arimathea. (laughs) There came a rich man from Arimathea. Do you think God had a plan? It said his grave was to be made with the wicked. Yet, he was buried with the rich. How was he buried with the rich? Because God sovereignly worked in the heart of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea that was one of the Sanhedrin. He so worked in his heart he came to believe and he couldn't, he just couldn't accept his Savior being thrown in a dump. And he was willing to step out and say, give it to me, I've got a brand new tomb right here. See, the prophecy of Isaiah 53, written thousands of years before, was fulfilled in the sovereignty of God at the tomb. Because instead of being thrown out with the rest, he was brought into the rich man's grave, just as Isaiah said. Second, we see the sovereignty of God in the time Jesus was in the tomb. There was a specific time that he was in the tomb. It's a little tough to do the math for us because if you've been doing the math in your head, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it says three days and three nights. Somehow that math doesn't work. We celebrated him rising Sunday morning. I count two nights, Friday, Saturday. If he'd have stayed Sunday, he'd have rose on Monday. But he said, 
three days and three nights, didn't he? So you have to know how to Jewish speak. It's a Jewish colloquialism. Any part of any day is considered to be a day and a night. That's why when he hung upon the cross and died, he was buried by 6 o'clock, the start of the new day, so that he was in the tomb Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning, which in the colloquialism of the day is three days and three nights. See, there's very specific terminology to what is used, and that to me shows the sovereignty of God. See, when Jesus was alive, everyone had come to him and said, hey, let's see you do a miracle. Remember that? Everybody always wanted to see Jesus do these miracles, from the healing of the cripple to the giving sight to the blind, the feeding of the masses of people. Everyone wanted to see Jesus do some type of miracle. The religious leaders were absolutely no different. The same guys, the Nicodemuses, the Joseph of Arimathea, the high priest, Caiaphas, Annas, all these guys, they wanted to see Jesus. Such so if you're God, let's see it. They wanted to see him do it. How do we know that? Matthew 12. Just flip back a little bit in Matthew 12. And this is where the greatest miracle, the greatest sign to me comes from. See, when they confronted Jesus and it, with who Jesus said he was, when they approached him and said, who, who do you say you are? They want to prove from a sign. It says in, in Matthew uh, chapter 12 over in verse 38, it says, and Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answer saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Want to see a sign from you. Jesus said, when he answered to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He reaches way back into the Pharisaical history and says, if you want a sign, let me tell you a story that you already believe because it's in your books. You believe the story of Jonah. Let me reach back there and grab this one for you. He said, the only sign you're going to see is the sign of, of Jonah. Which is in verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, tell us, who are you? Show us a sign. If you're God, show us a sign. He said, you want a sign because you're an adulterous generation. Let me tell you what the sign is. And it was prophesied when the story of Jonah happened. When Jonah was placed in the belly of a whale and was spit out three days later to go tell the world that there was a Savior. To go tell the world that God loved them. Guess what? I'm your new Jonah. But I'm not going to be in the belly of a whale. I'm going to be in the heart of the earth. And just as assuredly as three days after Jonah went into the fish, he came out. Three days after I go into the ground, I will come out. See, when I asked for a giant, uh, sign, Jesus said, no, you're not going to get a sign. The only sign you will see is a sign like the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jesus said he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. <laughs> he spoke of his death. In his resurrection. How do we see the sovereignty of God in that? Three days after Jesus was placed in the tomb, it was found to be empty. The very words that God, in man form, Jesus, spoke to the religious leaders were found to be true. Why? Because God is sovereign. And the proof that God is sovereign in the tomb is the fact that Jesus rose three days later. The proof that God was there, that God made it happen, was the missing body. God had prophesied that he'd be buried with the rich. And Jesus himself had said, I'd be put in a tomb and three days later found to be missing. <laughs> I'd be risen. 
See, both of those were accomplished just as they were foretold. Exactly as they were foretold. See, we've seen the certainty of the tomb, and we've seen the sovereignty in the tomb, but there's a third point very quickly. And this leads us to the security of the tomb. You see, it's not just enough to be certain that Jesus died and was buried in a tomb. It's not just enough to believe that God was sovereign over everything that happened at His crucifixion and His death, His burial, and His resurrection. It's not just enough. See, Jesus' death and crucifixion had satisfied God's wrath on the sin for those who believe. His his death had satisfied God. The wrath that He was going to place on the sin on us had been placed on Jesus on the cross. The fact that his burial was just as he and the Father had prophesied shows God's sovereign control over that situation. And the fact that he rose from the dead offers those who believe the security of eternal life. You see, that empty tomb first tells us there is secure that God accepted Jesus' payment. Very quickly, flick the Acts with me. We're out of time. But in Acts, Acts chapter 2, and you're going to have to write these down because I'm going to go to it quick. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, it says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, see the sovereign control, says that you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. See, what happened was God was in sovereign control. He used the Pharisees and Sadducees to put Jesus to death. Why? That our sins may be covered by his blood. They placed him in a tomb, not knowing that they were fulfilling the scripture that said he would be buried with the rich. Then he rose from the dead. How? By the sovereign power of an almighty God, because the pains of death could not hold the mighty Savior. He rose from the dead for us. It goes on to tell us in verse 32 that Jesus has raised up, uh, uh, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and have received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this which you now see and hear. Jesus was not only crucified, was not only buried in a tomb, not only rose the third day, but now he sits at the right hand of the Almighty God. And see, we came from the grave for one reason. That he now stands as an intermediary between us and God. When we get on our knees and pray, God, please, we need this. Forgive me of my sin. Jesus steps in the middle and says, God, that's my man. I died on the cross for him. Put his sin on me. I've already paid the price. And he can do that because he's no longer in the grave. He's risen from the grave. Then in verse 36, it goes on to say this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. See, when he preached, he said this. This God that you put to death, that you put in a tomb, was raised by the power of an almighty God. He's now sitting at the right hand of God. And you know what? He is Lord whether you admit it or not. Then the Bible tells us that in the last days, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that he is king of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of an almighty God. Why is it significant to understand that the tomb is empty? It's secure in the fact that Jesus is our God and our Savior and our Lord. Second, 
there is security that we can be saved through what he did. See, it's not enough to know. It's not enough to believe that it says in the scripture, you must believe in your heart. There's not enough preaching I can do in all the world to preach you into heaven. There's not a thing I can say over you. There's not a prayer I can say over you. There's not enough communion in the world. There's not enough church services in the world for you to get through the gates of heaven. The only way you can get through the gates of heaven is to truly believe that this Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried three days later, was found to be risen, and is now Lord. And he's not just Lord of the world. He had better be Lord in your life. He can be Lord of my life. And if he's not Lord of your life, I'm going to heaven and you're going to a place called hell. And there's no way around it. He has to both be your Christ and your Lord. In Mark, in closing, Mark 16. It says this, and I'm going to fly through these scriptures. Mark 16 verse 9 says this. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary of Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. You remember the road to Emmaus? And it says, and they went and told the rest. But they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and the hardness of their heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But it doesn't end there. It says, but he who does not believe will be condemned. You either believe that he was God, died on a cross for your sins, was buried, and rose three days later. You either believe that unto salvation, or you don't believe any part of that, and your destiny is a place called hell. And it's not because God sends you, it's because you choose it. So it says those who believe will be saved. Is that enough to just believe it? Because remember, we had Joseph of Arimathea that believed it, but there was one problem. He was doing it in secret. You see, God requires one thing of you. If he's willing to crawl upon a cross naked and die for your sins and be ridiculed and beaten upon and, and humiliized for others, he asks one thing of you. Romans 10, 9 tells us this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not enough just to believe. You must confess that with your mouth. You must not be, as Joseph of Arimathea, a secret in the closet Christian. You should be up front. That you are saved. You should be upfront that Jesus is not only your Christ who died upon the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, but He is your Lord and directs your path. See, third, there is security that we will have in eternity with Jesus. One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible is John 14, 1 through 4. And it says this Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And what must you believe about Jesus? You must believe that he was God, born of a virgin. You must believe that he lived a perfect, sinless life as an example to us. You must believe that he crawled upon a cross willingly and took your sin upon his body. You must believe that God turned his back on, on 
Jesus and placed the wrath that we deserved upon him. The lights went out at noon, if you remember. You must believe that he was taken from that cross after he had given up his life for us when he said, it is finished. And he was placed into a tomb three days later found to be risen. You must believe. Whatever it says, let not your heart be troubled. You, you believe in God, you must believe in me. Those are the things you must believe also in him. He says, if you believe that in my father's house or many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go, the one who crawled up on a cross, who, who was placed in the tomb, the one who had the power of God in him and rose from the dead. By the way, the stone wasn't moved so he could get out. You do know that, right? The stone was moved so we could get in because we too don't believe if we don't see. But he walked out. With the tomb still closed. <laughs> he says, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. Who is the way? Jesus. I have the truth. I have the way. The way we know. The way is Jesus. I have a question for you this morning. Do you know the certainty of the tomb? Do you know for certain that Jesus Christ died? And that he didn't just die, that he died for you. Do you know that each of you, when he was on the cross, he took your sin, your sin, your sin, upon him. He was willing to be separated from a God he had never been apart from for you and you and me. Do, do you know certainly that he took that and was murdered because of us? It's as if we drove the nails in his hands and feet. It's as if you held the spear and running in his side. We killed him. We can blame it on the Sadducees, Pharisees, Pilate, Herod, all we want. It was us who killed him. Do you believe he died? The certainty of the tomb that he was dead? Do you believe the sovereignty of the tomb that it was God's plan all along? It never caught God by surprise. God said, you want a sign? You want a miracle? I'm going to give you a miracle. My son... It's going to be gone when you come back. Just as I said, just as he said. So not only the certainty of the tomb that he was dead, but the sovereignty of the tomb that God was in control. And then that leads me to the greatest of all questions. Do you have security in that tomb? Have you ever accepted this Lord Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord? Not counting on what the church can do, not counting on what mom or granddad or any... Have, have you... Ever looked into the face of the one who was beaten so badly, was unrecognizable, and said, I believe. I believe that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I believe that Savior is you. And I believe the only way I can have you as my Savior is to turn my life over to you, as the Word says, to be in you. Have you ever had the security of his death upon a cross for your sin? And then have you truly believed that you have life eternal because of his rising from the dead? Have you ever placed the security of your life not in your bank account, not in your life insurance, not in your doctor and your health plan, but in the great physician? Amen. Have you ever placed your eternal life in the hands of the doctor of all doctors that heals the very soul within us? If not today, it could be the day that you turn your life over to Christ because of the proof in the tomb. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. 
We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.